I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Okay, uh, H-I-P-P-Y hippie. A triple letter score on the H, so it's uh, 23. Nice. <laughs> ah, uh, but I, you know, I don't think that's how you spell hippie, honey. I think it ends in an I-E. No, I, I don't mean the patchouli-wearing, peace be with you, but don't touch my iPhone kind of hippie. I meant um, hippie, like, wow, they've only been married two years, but she sure got hippie. Maybe she ought to cut down on the blueberry gelato. <laughs> oh, I see. What? Nothing. It's nice word, honey. Thank uh, you. 23 points. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, here we are. Using the P from hippie, and we have got puny. <laughs> Triple word score, 27 points. Puny, huh? Uh-huh. Hmm. More gelato, honey? Nah, I'm good. <laughs> you are. Okay, uh, using the M from emasculate, uh, M-U-S-T-A-C-H-E, as in, she was so beautiful when they met, but now that mustache makes her look like Wilford Brimley. Wow! I know, that's a bingo, so triple yeah. word score, 66. Oh, that's really good, honey. You are tearing it up. Tearing it up. All right. All right, using the C from mustache... And the A from Harpy, Mm -hmm. celibate. Huh, uh, celibate? Yes, it means to voluntarily abstain. Oh, I know what it it means. Yeah, it's a double score on the B. Uh, That's 15 points. What do you think you'll be scoring on the next turn, honey? You think you'll score a lot? Uh, no, no, I I don't think Right. All right, uh, let's see here. Using the Y in hippie, S-O-R-R-Y. Sorry, really? What? It's just it's not not a really effective word at this stage of the game. Uh, Okay, uh, what would be an effective word? I kind of have junk for letters right now. I don't know, contrite, maybe compunctious? Okay, compunctious is going to take more than seven tiles, but uh, would you you accept my bad? (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to go to bed, and you can crash on the couch until you think of a better word. 
okay, um, let's see. Uh, honey, what about this? It's a two-word phrase that symbolizes my extreme penitence while still allowing me to maintain my lingering masculinity. Uh, plus, I think it's Icelandic for mustard. Ugh. What is it? It's, it's... in the dictionary as we speak. Tonight, author Karen Carbo, director of Six Days to Air, The Making of South Park, Arthur Bradford, and musical guest, Two Fawning. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm your host, Courtney Hommeister, and you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it took Ayn Rand to decide whether she would violate the principles of objectivism by helping herself to seconds of the potatoes au gratin at the neighborhood potluck. She writes, Scott writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And music from our house band, Ralph Huntley and the Mutton Chops. Thanks, Ralph. As I mentioned earlier, Karen Carbo is going to be here. She's going to read from her beautiful new biography, How Georgia Became O'Keefe. And you're going to want to stick around for that. We're also having documentary filmmaker Arthur Bradford on the show. Arthur directed the documentary Six Days to Air, The Making of South Park. And if you haven't seen it, South Park is an animated show that Trey Parker and Matt Stone create in six days. Six days in the world of animation is unheard of. A Simpsons episode takes 10 months to create. Parker and Stone create their show in 0.02% of that time. And this got me thinking about deadlines. Most people see deadlines as their enemies. They're these ominous, looming, evil jerks who stand in front of our desks, arms crossed, toes tapping, with a smug, self-satisfied look on their stupid, puffed-up, waxy, holier-than-thou deadline faces. Where's the thing, they'll say, their head bobbing dramatically on their dumb hole fathead neck. (laughs) What thing, you reply. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. You've got the document up on your computer right now. It's right beneath the Facebook window, Arrested Development, Season 2, Episode 6 on Hulu and Tetris. Who plays Tetris anymore? (laughs) Shut up, you reply. Who wears Dockers and Polo Cologne anymore? You smell like one of those air fresheners that hang off the rearview mirror of a car. Shut up, my girlfriend likes it. Is your girlfriend a Toyota? (laughs) At least these are the arguments that I have with deadlines in my head. I once saw Trey Parker and Matt Stone being interviewed on Charlie Rose, and they talked about how they tried to make the show in a longer period of time and maybe start thinking of ideas during the summer, And at one point, they realized that this just wasn't how their brains work. And I I can kind of picture their ideas just lollygagging around the hidden corners of their brains, kicking up dust, and maybe comparing iPad apps. When one of them spots the witless fathead of the deadline getting closer, we should probably go show ourselves. Deadline standing right there. Yeah, I can smell his cologne. God, I hate that guy. Then the ideas amble slowly toward the forefront of their brains, gaining speed as the deadline leans in. 
This might not be exactly what happens, but as soon as Matt and Trey accepted that their brains didn't kick in until the very last minute, it changed one really significant thing. They stopped thinking of themselves as failures and flagellating themselves for not getting the work done sooner. And it was a huge relief. And it makes sense. Not beating yourself up for something you don't have any control over takes away a whole layer of brain activity that only gets in the way. Plus, if you're not continually whacking yourself with a leather whip you paid way too much for at the toy chest while you type, <laughs> makes the whole experience that much more pleasant. Humor writer Harry Shearer said, I am one of those people who thrive on deadlines. Nothing brings on inspiration more readily than desperation. So if you think of it that way, the deadline, that fat-headed, humorless, dockers-clad cod muncher we mentioned earlier, might actually be our friend. And in fact, for many creative people, the impending deadline is their only muse. So he should be treated with respect and kindness said hello to when passed in the hallway without the eye roll. And as much as it hurts, welcomed with open arms when he sneaks up on you in that creepy way that he does. Maybe even consider buying him a gift. Some new cologne would be nice for both of you. Our musical guest tonight is a four-piece band that uses found sound and timeless melodies and tribal beats to create an entirely unique sound. Critics have said that their first full-length record, Hearts on Hold, sounds like it was recorded in an abandoned, possibly haunted circus tent in the pitch-black darkness of the witching hour. <laughs> With haunting vocals by former solo artist Corina Rep, it sounds entirely possible. Please welcome Two Fawning to Livewire.
too funny. Thank you. Welcome to the show. That was amazing. Thanks. Typically that song is our closer when we're on tour, so it's really interesting to just come out and just do that song as the first song. Yeah. <laughs> and the only song in this segment, so. Yeah, and I think everyone would be spent after that. Anyone would be. That yeah. drumming was absolutely amazing, Joe. So some of you may know Joe from 31 Knots, and Karina, uh, you have a very successful solo career, and, but, but both of your music sounds so incredibly different from this project. So what was it about the coming together that changed the style so much for you guys? Joe and I are both taking, kind of taking a break from our respective projects and just decided to um, start writing songs together, and, and literally like within six months, I think we were accidentally a band. <laughs> I don't think we intended to be a band, and then we just were, and then with Happens to a lot of people in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> oh my God, I totally went we're out to dinner like with this guy, and now we're in a band. Ugh. We're sitting around in coffee shops and bars going, hmm, what should I do with all my extra time? <laughs> right. I guess I'll start a band. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then really quickly after that, we asked Liza and Toussaint to join. Their, that was the two people that we had in mind almost instantly, mm -hmm. and we asked them, and they said yes, so... And that was uh, four years ago or something. Right? <laughs> well, it does. It's, the combination sounds absolutely fantastic. And this last record was definitely had a darker feel to it. And, and darker, again, than your other projects. And, and I actually read that you're thinking that this next record might be a little brighter. You mean the record that's going to next year? That you're year? working on. Yeah. yeah, we actually just finished it. It's mastered. Um, and it, it is a tad brighter, but... <laughs> Still, still pretty relatively dark, I think. It's, it's Why do you actually think that is? maybe a little more sentimental. Like, I, 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 lyrically, I kind of combined the sentimentality of, of writing, performing solo songs and tried to express that more so with the band, as opposed to everything kind of being fictitious and creating characters. I kind of wanted to find a way to combine the two. How did me. that work? How did that feel for you? <laughs> um, Good, actually. It felt, it felt really natural. Like, it felt like the last record I kind of wanted to make an escape from being really emotional with the songs that I was writing and, and wanted to just kind of make everything very character-based. So it was, it was nice to have everything be more emotionally based because really I'm a softie with like a giant heart, like a giant weeping, <laughs> bleeding heart. So mm -hmm. it's not too hard for me to like write about stuff. Like yeah. <laughs> Well, and you can distance yourself so much more when, you're, when you say it's a, it's a character that you're writing about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I also read that you took on the drums when you came into this band. I did. I taught myself to play the drums. And then we, the next song that I play in the next segment is I'm playing drums. And I read that you guys do that during live shows. You guys you like switch. to switch, yeah. switch instruments. What does that do for you guys as musicians? It's, it's great, but I think we're kind of like, it can be kind of exhausting, actually, to like... Especially when you're, you know, playing a live show and you spend probably half the set switching around. So we've tried to get better at like writing better set lists, so we're not spending the entire set like just constantly moving around. So if I have three drum songs, I try to keep them all in a, in a row. And Toussaint plays drums, and Joe, you know, we're obviously like always moving around. So. Um, just try to keep moving around on stage to a minimum. You're just intensely working on a record right now. Yeah. Um, so when when can people expect to see the new record? I think in the sp in the spring. Great. Maybe between March and May. Do you have point. a name for it yet? Has it come? 
My, yeah, it's called A Monument. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll cool. look forward to seeing you guys Thanks. a little later in the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks Thank so you. much. Too fawning. Music tonight is brought to you by Dave's Killer Bread and the bread of the week, Good Seed. With 13 grams of whole grain and 4 grams of fiber per slice, it's seeding a better future for your mouth. Dave's Killer Bread, just say no to bread on drugs. We'll be right back. Beyond the Page, as Livewire uncovers the unpublished chapter of Karen Carbo's How Georgia Became O'Keefe, highlighting O'Keefe's previously undocumented time in the Special Forces. Okay, listen up. The enemy's headquarters is two clicks west. O'Keefe, you're running point on this. Talk the team through it. Yes, sir. Okay, the communist Nazi drug-dealing terrorists have the compound fortified with sentry guns, landmines, and robot attack dogs. The president's daughter is somewhere in the East Corridor. Delta team will approach from the north, drawing enemy fire so I can slip in undetected. Once inside, I'll dispatch of the enemy, find the hostage, and then paint a picture of a flower on the wall. All right, you may have your order. Wait, wait a minute, what was that last part? Mm, finding the hostage? Damn it, Special Army Green Beret Super Soldier Georgia O'Keefe. You know what I mean. This mission is far too risky for your floral shenanigans. With all due respect, Sarge, it's kind of my calling card. No, nuh-uh. Every time we complete a dangerous mission, you have to take an hour and channel your tender spirit inside, as you put it. Sir, you have seen me in action in some pretty hairy situations. Rwanda, Kosovo, the Main Street Parade at Disneyland. I get the job done. Fine, fine. But the president's daughter is top priority here, O'Keefe. Get in, get out. Great. Delta team, rendezvous with Echo Squad at this point here. Once the hostage is secured, I'm going to draw a mural of a cow skull here. What did I just say, O'Keefe? No, I meant I'm going to lay suppressing fire and radio our coordinates to the chopper. Right. No drawing. Oh, look, Sarge, sometimes you just got to savor the harvest. I don't have any idea what that means, sorry. Your metaphors are too abstract, O'Keefe. I'm giving you a direct order and you better follow it. The mission was successful, and the president's daughter was rescued unharmed. Georgia O'Keeffe, however, was dishonorably discharged after painting a poppy blossom awash in the glow of dawn on the side of a tank. 
And that was tonight's Beyond the Page. Next time, Livewire looks at the early breakdance days of Gore Poppin' Fresh Vidal. That was Trisha Ferguson and Andrew Harris with sound effects by David Ian. And now for some actual information about the life of Georgia O'Keeffe. Our next guest has published three novels, including Motherhood Made a Man Out of Me, a memoir, and a young adult series. And you can find her essays, short stories, and articles in publications like Vogue, Esquire, and the New York Times. Her most recent project has been what she calls her Kick-Ass Women Trilogy, How to Hepburn, Lessons on Living from Kate the Great, The Gospel According to Coco Chanel, and now the third, How Georgia Became O'Keeffe a funny, sharp take on living an artful life with lessons from a master. Please welcome Karen Carbo to Livewire. Thank you so much. I'm going to read a little bit from How Georgia Became O'Keefe um, from the first chapter. I'm sure Georgia O'Keefe is not someone who's been on your mind lately, so I thought I would start at the beginning from the chapter called Defy. You'd be hard-pressed to find a life that's been more mythologized than that of Georgia O'Keefe's. So many people have gushed so flagrantly over her huge erotic flower paintings, her long and unconventional marriage to Alfred Stieglitz, the otherworldly landscape of northern New Mexico with its voluptuous land forms and many large dead animals whose skulls and vertebrae she immortalized. It's amazing there aren't more O'Keeffe folk songs, limericks, totems, feast days, rituals, annual pilgrimages, and bank holidays. Given our feelings for everything she represents, it speaks well of the human race that we haven't fetched up a minor religion around her that worships independence, focus, creativity, and the proud wearing of those bad headscarves my mother used to don the day before she went to the beauty parlor. O'Keefe attracts as she repels, and perhaps that's what makes her so intriguing. People like to say they don't give a damn, but O'Keefe lived it. She was the embodiment of two aspects of living that most of us dread, being old and being alone. For O'Keefe, 40 was the new 60. She had no problem being known for decades as the old lady in the desert, an old lady in heavy black clothes with beautiful cheekbones and a lot of wrinkles, with no one for company but her various housekeepers and a pair of fierce chow-chows who provided hours of entertainment by chasing off and occasionally biting unwanted guests. Few human beings manage to be so resolutely themselves for so much of their lives. If we're lucky, we're able to scrape together a few days of self-realization in high school, followed by a month or two in college, after which we fall in love and completely revamp our personality to please our beloved. Or else we land a job that requires us to kiss up to someone with whom we normally wouldn't give the time of day, after which we have children and don the invisible T-shirt that says, I live to serve. By the time the kids are grown, we're tired and set in our ways, and all it takes is waking up in a hotel room in a new city to forget who we are completely. O'Keefe is the poster child for doing exactly what you want in the service of an abiding passion. Intuitively, we know how rare this is. 
In 1999, Monster.com, the online employment agency, made a mockumentary commercial called When I Grow Up, which featured kids answering that age-old question. Instead of saying they wanted to be astronauts or the person who discovers the cure for cancer, they foretold their futures. I want to file all day, said one kid. I want to climb my way to middle management, said another. I want to be a yes man, said the third. The ad was wildly successful. We laughed in recognition of how hard it is to make our dreams come true. Unless you're 15, when the point of divine convention is to piss off everyone around you, the main reason for refusing to go along with familial, societal, and economic expectations is so you can free up your time and thoughts to pursue something meaningful. Living up to the expectations of the world can take up all your time and energy if you let it. The clearer we are about what we want and what may be our abiding passion, the easier it is to chart our own course. In the art world, critics remain divided over whether O'Keefe was a genius or merely an energetic fetishist who pressed upon us year after year her sexy painting of calla lilies, sweet peas, the various chalk-white bones of horses and cows, mysterious doorways and adobe walls. What remains indisputable, however, is her genius for navigating the waters of her own vision, for discovering it, nurturing it, and never abandoning it. At a time when women still didn't have the right to vote, when their life goal was marriage to pretty much anyone who would have them, O'Keefe was having none of it. She had better fish to fry. How, may we ask, did she catch these all-important fish? Welcome to the show, Karen. Thanks for having it's me. It's great to have you back. Uh, so f- what was it about Georgia O'Keeffe that inspired you to write about her? You know, this is a question I ask myself. <laughs> um, I think I have an affinity for irritable, thin women who live very long. <laughs> Why do you think that is, Karen? I, well, because I'm, I'm intrigued with, um, perhaps it's obvious, with women who, who have entire life stories that unfold after their exploration date. You know, they're, um, when O'Keefe was uh, born, women lived to be 52, and she did not start her New Mexico phase of her life until she was 59, so. Yeah, and, she, and how, how long did she live? She lived to be um, 99. And she had an extremely young lover when she died, didn't she? She did, Mr. Juan Hamilton. It was a, it was a very Harold and Maude, for those of you who remember that movie. Um, <laughs> she was in her 80s when she met him, and I believe he was 24 in 1973. Oh, damn! <laughs> you go, Georgia! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you actually went to New Mexico in an RV. We did, yes. Tell me about that trip. Well, I, um, you know, we really felt like we needed to sort of have kind of a transcendent O'Keefean experience. You know, she was all about the landscape and all about New Mexico. So we borrowed the in-laws' 27-foot RV and drove to New Mexico. And we had no plan. That was the other big thing because O'Keefe was very... Um, her, her life, she would just get in the car and go or get on the train and go, and she never made any plans. So we wanted to 
um, not only see what she saw in terms of the landscape, we wanted to kind of live in the O'Keefean present, as mm -hmm. it were. And how'd that work out? We went to Ghost Ranch where George O'Keefe had lived for many years, and um, it was the spring, and we figured because we were going south that the weather was only going to get warmer and more beautiful. And when we were at Ghost Ranch, there was a blizzard on May 1st, we, our visibility was six inches in front of our noses, so all of the great vistas of the Pedernal and the Red Mountains and the Black Mountains, we saw nothing. We saw six inches in front of our face. We were the only people in the RV campground. And, um, but we kind of had a great time. We made chicken noodle soup, and we had no technology. I know, this is a good time, isn't it? We, um, we had no technology. We had no internet. And, you know, we were sitting there and we were reading and, and, you know, playing some card games. And we thought this was really sort of awesome because we realized that you really don't need technology, that nothing happens. When you get out of touch, you're not online, nothing happens. And as we drove out of Ghost Ranch back down the hill towards Santa Fe, we turned on the radio and they were talking about, well, did he, did he, I, I think when they, when they went in, he, they put, they put, he put his wife in front of him and we had no idea what he was, ta he was talking about. And of course it was the day that Osama bin Laden had been captured and we missed the whole thing. <laughs> so the moral of the story is never disconnect. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think that O'Keefe would have said that. She would have said that. Definitely. Right. Never leave your Blackberry at home. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a beautiful book, and the, the actual, the artwork in it is lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, every uh, chapter is paired with a beautiful, this sounds like a wine pairing, a beautiful O'Keefe painting. That it was somewhat difficult to get, correct? It was a little difficult to get. Um, you know, a whole book could be written about how difficult it is to get permission for art pieces of mm -hmm. contemporary masters. <laughs> and... Um, in fact, there was an entire intern working at the publishing house for two months getting um, permission from all the different museums and also from the George O'Keefe Foundation, which has to give permission. And we were all set up to go. All the fees had been paid. All the contracts had been signed. And it was literally the day the book was supposed to go to press. And the publisher got a phone call saying, we read in your catalog copy that you used the word vagina flower paintings. And unless you take the vagina out, you don't get permission for the artwork. So apparently vagina monologues have never, has not gotten to Santa Fe yet. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, so there was a big scrambling and of course it was up on Amazon that way and Amazon I think only refreshes their page like every week or so so they wouldn't give us permission until that disappeared. These are art people. Art people love vaginas. I know. It's very bizarre. And no one has ever thought those flowers look like vaginas. No, this is, never. This is, I, I broke the news. Exactly. <laughs> Well, the, the book is wonderful. Uh, the book is How Georgia Became O'Keefe, Lessons in the Art of Living. The author is Karen Carbo. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Courtney. Welcome back to Small Talk. I'm your host, Tim. With me today in ODS Tower Elevator B is Wade, a guy I just met. Hey. Hey. So you, uh, you work on 16, right? Uh, 17. Oh. Oh, it's a good, good floor. It's yeah. Good floor. 
Uh, Weed. What is that? French? Uh, Scandinavian. Huh. Sounds French to me. Shirt's not French? Yeah. Huh. It's chilly out. Yeah, uh, supposed to get down to 36 today. Burr. (laughs) (laughs) Better get my long johns out. So you uh, see that sports game yesterday? Which one? I don't know. <laughs> so uh, what? What kind of what kind of fabric is that? Is that mesh? Or... Oh, that's my floor. Oh, okay. Uh, bye, Wayne. This has been Small Talk. Uh, join us next week when we'll not be talking to the cute girl that waters the plants on the eighth floor. Sean McGrath with sound effects by David Ian. Our next guest is an award-winning writer and director. In addition to publishing a book of short stories called Dog Walker and essays in Esquire, McSweeney's, and Tin House, Arthur Bradford is also the director of the MTV documentary series How Is Your News, which followed developmentally disabled adults on a cross-country road trip as they interviewed politicians, athletes, and musicians. His most recent project is Six Days to Air, The Making of South Park. It's an enlightening 40-minute peek into the world of Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the creators of the darkly satirical, joyously crude, and purposefully profane animated series on Comedy Central. Please welcome Arthur Bradford to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Arthur. Thank you, Corny. It's great to have you back. We had you uh, a couple years ago for when you were working on How's Your News. Right, yeah. It's good to be back. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very different project. Uh, why, going from How's Your News to South Park, why, why South Park now? Um, well, uh, interestingly enough, um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, the creators of South Park, were the executive producers of How's Your News. So um, after How's Your News uh, didn't get renewed, um, I was looking for a, ne- a next project, and I uh, turned to them. And, and I, I knew the way that they made South Park was interesting, and uh, they had never let anybody kind of inside their process, so I thought maybe I could be that person. Well, and you've known them for 14 years, right? Right, right. You knew them before South Park started. I did, I did. What, I, what did you think of South Park when you saw the first episode? Um, I, I, uh, didn't think it was going to make it. (laughs) I didn't tell him that, but I remember thinking like, this is never going to be a success. (laughs) You have really good instincts. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, um, as a friend of theirs, what was it like to make this documentary about them? Yeah, I was, I was kind of worried that, um, you know, I was going to ruin our friendship. Um, but I knew that the, that South Park was a really interesting subject. I, I've, every time I discuss it with people, you get such a wide range of opinions about it. Um, and I felt like if I was successful, I could have those people that, 
didn't really know much about South Park, maybe they would gain a newfound respect because the way they make that show is really unique and fascinating. It is. It's incredibly... I mean, you just get... When you watch the documentary, you realize how much pressure they're under and how deadline-oriented that show is. Um, is there a reason why they created such a short deadline for themselves? Um, I think it's... it's Part of the reason is, honestly, like, it's laziness. They, they, they don't... They just don't want to work on anything until they have to, and I think a lot of us could relate to that. It's like, you need a deadline to get something done. But they also have kind of discovered that sort of brilliant thing that I think we figured out when we were in high school and college. Like, if you just, if you can't second-guess yourself, then you get it done. And that's the way South Park is done. Every Tuesday night, if you watch South Park, you should know this, that every Tuesday night, everybody that works on South Park stays up all night from just absolutely all night to get that show done. Well, and you and your crew, you had a policy that if they worked, you worked. Exactly, yeah. We, we stayed up all night with them, which was hard to do. Why did you decide to do that? Um, I think it was, we felt like we were like embedded with the troops. We wanted to, we, we had to prove, um, you know, that we could, we could stay up all night too. And we wanted them to respect us. <laughs> Well, and you got inside more than... No one has ever been allowed in that writer's room. The writer's room is really sacred on that show. And you got in there. You, put, you actually put surveillance cameras in there and mics as opposed to having a crew in there. Why'd you choose to do that? Um, well, we talked about that. I really wanted to get into the writer's room. This was my personal curiosity. I, I really wanted to see how they made the show. And they were really reticent about, like, you know, if we have cameras in there, it's going to make us feel um, inhibited about what we can say. And, and if you watch South Park, you know they say whatever they want to say. So, um, so uh, and, and I, I, I agree with that. They didn't want to have, like, cameras and boob mics, like, pivoting at every comment. So we stuck these little, um, actually, the cameras you use, like, on snowboards and skateboards and helmet cams, we stuck them all over the room. So we just, they, and then we just left, and, and then we looked at the footage later. Um, and, and, uh, and we got some really interesting stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you just joined us, you're listening to Livewire, and I'm talking to Arthur Bradford, the director of Six Days to Air, the South Park documentary. Um, and actually, this is a good time um, to play a clip. Do, did you want to set the clip up? Yeah, sure. Um, I, this is a clip where um, I'm talking to Trey Parker, who is... He's kind of, as Matt Stone... Those of you who know South Park, it's Matt Stone and Trey Parker who create the show... But Matt will, will graciously say that Trey is the chef of the show because they talk about everything in the, in the writer's room and then Trey has to go into his office and write every single word. And every single word of every South Park episode is written by Trey Parker. And so you've never really seen somebody with so much pressure and so much angst upon them as this show gets made. So I would sneak into the, as he was writing, and I would try to ask him questions and bother him while he was writing. <laughs> so this is one of those interviews. Oh, and I should say, um, at one point, he, he says that thing over there, and it's a Star Wars Imperial at-at made of Legos. Let's play right. that clip. Sometimes I get my brain working a different way to sit there and put Legos together, because it just, it's just like you got an instruction book, and you just sit there and you do exactly what something else tells you to do instead of you having to tell everybody what to do. And it's just therapeutic. But I did that one last run, and actually, you can turn it on, it actually walks. It's pretty sweet. McDonald's. I got chicken nuggets, and always with sweet and sour hot mustard. 
Big Mac? Yeah. How did McDonald's affect your creativity? It doesn't. It just makes me happy for like five minutes because I get, I hate writing so much because the writing part of it is actually so like lonely and sad, you know, because it's just, it's that thing, I know everyone's waiting for me to like get it done and like, um, and just that, that little battle of fighting over lines and like trying to figure out what the best way to say certain things are. So I just hate it so much that a little bit of, it's just a little sunshine. It just makes you feel so sad for him. Yeah, he's just trying to get through. Like, he, he like, slugs down Red Bull and Dayquil and whatever he can do to just get through <laughs> the experience. It's crazy. He's miserable that entire time that he's creating South Park. Like, he hates the whole process, but he loves the end result so much. He does all the voices and, and everything, so... That's what I found so interesting about making this, this film is I think those of us who create things can really relate to that. It's just kind of a miserable process. The thing is, when they're working on the show, it's every single day. The show yeah. is due on a Wednesday. They turn it in on a Wednesday, and they just have to come in and do that same process again. Yeah. And they, they don't sleep. And at one point, you know, Matt Stone says, we don't really have any friends anymore. You know? <laughs> well, I think they say that because of all the, the, the like the celebrities that they've made fun of and, um, <laughs> and because that's what's so fun about those guys is they're so successful yet they're so outside of the whole Hollywood system mm -hmm. that it's very refreshing. And I should say, like as when I say that they're miserable, my favorite parts of this documentary, if you get a chance to see it, is when they're in the sound booth recording the voices, it, it's like this uninhibited joy. So you go, you see Trey like miserable at the keyboard, and then like 20 minutes later, he's recording the things that he's written in the sound booth, and he's having so much fun. They're they're like little kids when they're recording those. Yeah, voices. and he loves watching it too, and he's involved in the whole process of editing as yeah, well. Yeah. And you can see him smiling and laughing, and yeah. as as he's watching it. Um, ba just based on your experience there and the kinds of deadlines that they had, what would it be like to work at South Park? Um, I think if you're an animator or, or, or um, yeah, it would be hard. It would be a little bit like you're going back to that, those days when you pulled all-nighters in college or high school. Like, they sleep under their desks, and, and they, they just have to get it done. Um, but on, on the other hand, they get time off. Like, they get these big breaks. Like, you get a spring break. Like, like we don't get that as adults. <laughs> right. as, yeah. Right. yeah, it's like going back to high school and college, basically. And yeah. you've said that those guys are really inspiring for you. What was the most in inspiring part of the documentary for you? Um, I think seeing, seeing them get it done. I mean, the, the thing about Matt and Trey is, those of you probably are aware, that they also, meanwhile, went off and made this Tony Award-winning musical, um, The Book of Mormon. So the whole time they were, we were filming this, the Book of Mormon was, like, blowing up on Broadway, and, and they were getting nominated for Tonys. So... I, I just kind of want to tell this story about Matt Stone, what, that he once told me, like, um, if you want to get something done, you just need to get it done. Like, don't, don't worry about, like, like, he had this friend who was like, yeah, let's, we're going to go write a screenplay, and we're going to go to a coffee house, and we're going to go get lattes, and we'll write the screenplay, and we'll all get together. And Matt was always like, you know what? F those lattes. Let's just get it done. Let's just write the screenplay. And I always think that. It's like, F the lattes. Forget it. Like, just get it done. Like, just get it done, you know? Um, <laughs> I'm really proud of myself for saying that without saying the, 
the actual word. Well done. But, but I think about that a lot. Is, you know what? Just forget the lattes. Just get, this, get, just get the work done, you know? Like, yeah, really absolutely. What has been their response to the documentary? Um, they were very receptive to it, thankfully. I, I was very worried about that. And we're still working, actually, on a longer um, feature film, which is, is kind of about their their whole careers because um, I think their their whole story as like these two guys from Colorado who have gone on to make it is really inspiring as well. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And people can actually, it's still airing on Comedy yeah. Central and the next time it airs is 9 p.m. on the 23rd. Right. So South Park ends the week before uh, that Wednesday the 16th and then the next Wednesday on the 23rd in the South Park slot you can see this documentary if you're interested. Of, yeah, of the 23rd of November. Right, the, uh, on Comedy Central. And you are, you're, you're working on a children's book now for McSweeney's, yeah. so it's a little bit of a, just, it's, I would imagine, jarring shift <laughs> from, from working with South Park guys. <laughs> yeah, I ha- uh, well, it's done now. That, um, I have a children's book coming out with McSweeney's uh, called Benny's Brigade, and uh, it, you can get it in March. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Arthur Bradford. The documentary is Six Days to Air, The Making of South Park. You're listening to Livewire Radio. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, this month featuring their always antibiotic-free, hormone-free, and injection-free turkeys. Who said there's no such thing as an antibiotic-free lunch? (laughs) Or a hormone-free Thanksgiving, for that matter. Information on how to cook the perfect turkey this Thanksgiving can be found at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be right back. some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words based on the prompt, My Life Story. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks and will now read them with the help of sound architect Ralph Huntley. And now Flash Fiction. Nicole writes, one diamond short of a flush. (laughs) 
Liz writes, went to law school. Bad idea. <laughs> Chris G. writes, lots of ideas, little follow-through. <laughs> Stephen wrote, hobo knife fights no longer inspire. <laughs> From Jen T., lost my expectations, enjoying the ride. Jake Grubbs writes, I rolled more than I rocked. <laughs> Great job, audience, on tonight's Flash Fiction. Flash Fiction was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Snow Day Winter Ale, brewed with a new Midnight Wheat Hops and featuring a creamy tan head that's probably wearing a jaunty toque because it's cold in there. Enjoy the unexpected with Snow Day by New Belgium Brewing Company. Thanks, New Belgium. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, once again, two fawning.
And now, as promised, the man who has been toiling away writing for the hour while we've just been hanging out, doing stuff, chatting, please welcome Mr. Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I hate to admit it here on public radio, but I learned tonight that I want to be Georgia O'Keeffe. <laughs> it's not the gray hair in a bun, because I don't have any hair where the bun is supposed to go. I look like Cartman with glasses. It's not her hippie majesty, she didn't really have hips, and it isn't that Wilford Brimley mustache. No, it's just that everything about her was so minimal. Plain black clothes, bare wood tables, adobe walls, sand whistling through the sockets of bleached skulls. Such luscious simplicity. I can imagine visitors showing up and seeing a spoon on a table and thinking it's epic and mythic just because it's at Ghost Ranch. I imagine them asking, are you going to paint that? Going to paint it to look like, you know, the lady parts? <laughs> If, if I was George O'Keefe, I'd love to say, no, no, I used it to kill a mouse earlier, and then I stirred my tin cup coffee with it, but the coffee was so bad, I spit it into the sand, and when I turned around, the snake had crawled upon the table and swallowed the spoon, so I jumped up on the table like a two-fawning song, did a flamenco dance number on it until the spoon squirted out some, and then I made a stew from the snake, but I fell into a hallucinogenic fever for a few days, where I imagined that I lived in a steamy, cluttered jungle, wearing a pink bikini surrounded by drum music and howler monkeys, and drew nothing but flowers that looked really, really small and far away. But when I woke up, that spoon was still there, and I just stared at it. Sometimes you have to forget the lattes and savor the harvest. It would be so fun to break the loneliness by coming up with reasons why you weren't creating, why you didn't paint things, living stripped down like that. Did you paint this cow skull? No, I shot that cow. I don't like alive cows, only the dead ones. They kind of freak me out. I do like taco salad, though. Thanks. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much.
to our guests tonight, Karen Carbo, Arthur Bradford, and Two Fawning. The Mutton Chops are Ralph Huntley, Reed Wallsmith, and Jim Brunberg. Tonight's show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Dave's Killer Bread, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for radio theater are writer Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse, Scott Poole, and Tynan DeLong. Faces for Radio Theater is directed by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. House sound by Scott McLeod. Stage management by Mark Bauck. Special thanks to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Von Drele and Ralph Huntley. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.